Let's pray before we dig in. Jesus, have your way. You are the king of the church. God, as your word goes forth, you promise it will accomplish your purposes. And so, God, would it accomplish your purposes? I pray for conviction. I pray for the Holy Spirit. And I pray that Jesus would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old clip from uh, an old TV show called The Little Rascals. Has anyone ever seen the original Little Rascals TV show? Raise your hand high. Proud. Be proud about this one, yeah? There's, all right. If you haven't seen the original, it's worth watching. They're funny. They're in black and white. They're good. Anyways, Little Rascals, there's this funny clip that happens where uh, Spanky comes home, and him and the guys have just gotten into all this trouble, and Spanky does his best to clean up all the evidence. He wants to make sure that he doesn't get caught for everything he just did. So he cleans up, he takes care of everything, he comes home, and he's in the midst of doing the last part, right? He's just, he's just finishing up all his cover-up of their mischievousness, and his mom walks in the door. Spanky looks back, and he sees his mom. And his mom, like moms do, knows everything immediately, right? And she looks at Spanky, and she has this line. She says this kind of like wisdom proverbial line. She says, Spanky, you can fool some people all of the time. And then Spanky cuts her off because he knows what she's about to say. And he goes, but you can't fool mom. (laughs) Isn't that true? Don't moms just have a way about them that they know stuff before you know stuff? I'm in in my 30s. I got three kids. I still feel like I give my mom a call, and if I'm hiding something, she knows it before I even say hello. What's going on, right? Our moms have this sense of intuition about what's going on. You can fool some people all the time, but you can't fool mom. You know, when you think about the most important piece of who you are, certainly it's your faith. Your faith drives everything. It drives your worldview. It drives your perspective on reality. It drives your decision-making, your judgments. It drives your vocation, your relationships. Your faith is at the center of who you are. And many of us have become experts at fooling everybody around us into convincing them that we got our faith in order and we're good, solid Christians. We're great at it. We wear masks all the time. We got everybody convinced. However, you can fool some people all the time when it comes to your faith. You can't fool God. You're not going to fool God. Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders of his day, Matthew chapter 23, he was speaking to basically the pastors of his day. They were the religious, they were considered the religious elites, right? They were the ones who were supposed to be leading and shepherding and guiding, and they were supposed to have things together. He writes to the Pharisees, he speaks to them, he says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. You appear righteous, you also outwardly appear righteous to other, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Today, we're continuing through this incredible book of Romans. I've just enjoyed this. It's been tough already, and we're only in chapter 2. We're going verse by verse through this book of Romans. And the book of Romans was written by Paul in about the year A.D. 57 to a church in Rome. And the church in Rome had never had any apostolic leadership. They never had the big dogs like Paul and Peter and John and James. They had never been up there. It was just a group of men and women that had been filled by the Holy Spirit, and they had gone off and launched this church. And Paul had a desire to go there and kind of put things in order. But he sent this letter ahead of him. He sent it ahead. 
He knew he'd be there in about a year or so, so he sent a letter ahead of him to say, hey, until I get there and give you some oversight, here's some theology. So if you're wondering why Romans is so packed of extensive theology, it's because he's writing to get things in order to a church that had never had good leadership yet, never had apostolic leadership. And we've broken the book of Romans into five main sections. This first section, we're right in the middle of it today, we've called the vast separation. It'll take us through most of chapter three. And the vast separation, that title gives away what these first three chapters are all about. There is a vast separation that exists between who we are and God. Our sin has separated us from God. That's Paul's whole point. So everything from chapter 1 through chapter 3, that's what he's getting at. There is a vast separation. No man can get to God on his own merit. We are in desperate need of grace and God's work on our behalf. That's Romans 1 to 3. There's a vast separation. And last week, we got into chapter 2 where Paul was exploring this theme of self-righteousness. Pretty prickly sermon last week kind of getting at our heart. And this, this idea that somehow as Christians we can kind of have this sense of moral superiority over anybody out there or in here. Self-righteousness says, I've got my act together. If only they could get their act together like me, the world would be a whole better place. And you know you've got an air of self-righteousness about you if when you come home at the end of the day, you start talking about other people and it sounds something like this. Man, why don't they just... I, this is what they should do about their marriage. I could fix that for them. You know, if they would just raise their kids this way, the way we raise their kids, they wouldn't have those problems. Well, why doesn't he make decisions the way I make decisions? Doesn't he know it would just be a whole lot better and easier if he did it just like me? See, if those are the conversations you're having, there's probably an air of self-righteousness about, righteousness about you. And today, Paul develops on that theme of self-righteousness, this idea that somehow we've got our act together and other people don't. And he's going to look at all the masks we put on to the outside world, all the ways we try to trick everybody around us, fool them all into thinking that we and Jesus are really good, when in reality, it's all show. It's just a whole bunch of sparkly gold and dead man's bones on the inside. You can fool a whole lot of people, but you can't fool God. Let's jump into Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know his will, you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the, nation, the Gentiles because of you. Now, let's start. Let's pause there. I'm going to take us through the end of chapter 2 today, but let's just pause there for a moment. He starts, if you call yourself a Jew. Now, this is a theme we're going to have to become very familiar with if we're going to get our, through Romans. And if you're new to church and you're walking in a church and you're saying, why are they talking about Jewish people? <laughs> What's going on in this room? Let me give us some context that will help us both today and pretty much for the next year as we study Romans. 
The early church was comprised of both Jewish people and Gentiles. In fact, Jesus was Jewish, believe it or not. He was born into a Jewish family underneath the Old Testament law, and he was the Jewish Messiah. He was the Savior, the long-awaited Savior of the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people had been longing and waiting. It had been prophesied many years before that this one was coming. And when he finally came, many Jews around Israel put their faith in Jesus and said, He's come. But they were surprised. They shouldn't have been surprised because this was written all through the Old Testament. But many were surprised that Jesus was not only the Jewish Savior, but he was the Savior of the whole world. Gentiles as well. That's everybody who's not Jewish. They were surprised, and so they got these churches together. And the churches were these really interesting places where there were a whole bunch of really Jewish people who had just trusted in Jesus as the fulfillment of all their Old Testament hopes and promises. And then you had a whole bunch of people that didn't have anything to do with Judaism. That was not their culture, their way of life, or how they were brought up, but they trusted in Jesus. They know he forgave them of their sin, and then he put them all in a room together. Talk about multi-ethnic church, right? They put them in a room together, and they said, Go, get along, right? Now, if you've been in uh, part of this church and you know we're on the journey of being a multi-ethnic church, it's not as easy as just saying, go, get along, right? There's a lot of reconciliation that's got to take place, right? Amen? There's a lot of reconciliation that still has to take place, church. We haven't made it, right? So much work to do, it's crazy, Right? And it was like, like that in the first century. You got a bunch of Jews and Gentiles getting together in a church, worshiping Jesus, and there's a whole bunch of history there of how they hated each other in the past. And they're like, ha, ha, I hope I don't say the wrong thing. Right? They're doing church together. And the Jews had an air about them that Paul's writing into. The Jews had this sense that while they were grateful the Gentiles were in the room, they also were like, well... Look, the whole Old Testament was given to us, right? All the promises, all the, we're the ones who have all the marks and the, the whole history of the world was about God speaking to the Jews. So sure, everyone's in the room, but we get a little bit of special privilege, don't we? They had this sense about them that somehow they were of greater value than everyone else in the room. And Paul writes into that. And he says, let's talk about that for just a moment. And he lists out three ways that they were considering themselves more valuable or better than anybody else in the room. He, he says this, the first one, verse 17. You call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and you boast in God. Basically, they had lots and lots of Bibles. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They had a ton of Bibles around. They were the kind of people that had the Old Testament law. God had given them the law, had given them the prophets, spoken his word to them, and they were boasting in that. They were the kind of people that had lots of Bibles around them. You know, lots of Bibles in the house, bring the Bible with them to church. Maybe they got a Bible verse tattooed on their shoulder or their chest somewhere. And, you know, they're the kind of people that if you were putting a Bible trivia team together to go compete at nationals, and that does exist, I just want you to know that, there's national Bible trivia, if you were putting Bible trivia together, you pick this guy over here, he's a Bible guy, Bible guy, he's got it, he's the one who knows the verses, he's got a bunch of it memorized even, his first screen name was Bible Guy 316, I mean, he's, he's the one, he's the one, you can have a whole lot of Bibles and Bible verses around you. And that does not mean that you have actual faith in Jesus. And they're looking at this. 
right? They can fool everybody else. How easy is it to walk around with one of these and memorize a couple verses, be able to speak those verses at the opportune times, and convince everyone else that you're a genuine follower of Christ, when in reality, there's no real faith. You can fool some people all the time, but you can't fool God. It's not how many Bibles you have. Number two, they were convinced that they were, they were good. They, they had this thing going on because they had a really strong moral compass. Check this out. Verse 18, and they know his will and they approve what is excellent. Hmm, they're fancy with this. These are the kind of people that they're excellent social commentators. They've got it all together. And when they look out, they can provide social commentary on any situation. They speak into politics. They speak into the school situation. They tell the other Pharisees how they should be doing their job, the other pastors how they should be doing their job. And here's the thing. They're so good at it that they fooled a whole bunch of people. They're great at it. We approve what is excellent, right? Look at, look at our life. We've, we've got this together, and, and we can tell them how to do it better. No, you know, no, no respect for anybody. We'll just tell you how to do it. Excellent moral compass. Their role in life is to be everyone's teacher. They're desperately trying to convince everyone around them that they know what everyone else should do. And people believe it. You know, sometimes when you're the person who uh, is coming with all the answers, people begin to go to you to get more answers because you seem like you have all the answers. But you know, the mark of humility is that you're a, you're a humble learner. And you, what Jesus is after is someone to go like this. I don't know what that means. Can you help me with that? I don't get it. You know, D.L. Moody, some of the great people who have been used in the past, they were famous for this. Great evangelists that have been used throughout history. D.L. Moody used to go into cities and he'd get in a room with pastors and tell them what his plan was. And then all the pastors would be like, ooh, D.L. Moody's in town. We're so excited. This is going to be crazy. And then D.L. Moody would open his Bible and be like, I don't get this verse. Can you guys explain it to me? He was a learner. And they'd be like, you're D.L. Moody. You're supposed to teach us. And he'd be like, who told you that? <laughs> I'm just trying to figure this Bible thing out too. Excellent social commentators. You can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool God. Number three, I love this one. They can, I've titled this one Mr. Awesome. They saw themselves as Mr. Awesome. Look how, they, look how he writes this. You are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Hear the sarcasm in Paul. You are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Oh, can you imagine a person that actually thought this about themselves? I am the embodiment of knowledge and truth. I am Mr. Awesome. I got it going on, right? I know how I ought to live, and if only everybody else would live the way I'm supposed to, the way I'm living, it would be good. You, go, you can always tell Mr. Awesome. Here's how you tell Mr. Awesome. Zero vulnerability. Mr. Awesome refuses to show any weakness or cracks. Mr. Awesome refuses to repent other than for show. Mr. Awesome thinks he's got it together. He'll repent when it's repenting time, and he wants to set the example of how other people should repent. But in terms of his prayer closet, he doesn't need to. He's got it all together. No vulnerability with anybody. No sharing of weakness and struggles and not having life all together. Mr. Awesome doesn't do that. He is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. How easy is it to fool everybody else into thinking that you got it all together? But you don't fool 
God. You can be surrounded by Bibles and Bible verses. You can, have, you can be a respected voice in the church. You can literally think you are the essence of morality. And yet beneath all that outward display of gold, you can be a bag of empty bones. You're utterly bankrupt. This is what Paul says in verses 21 to 24. He starts you know, doing a spiritual audit on them. You teach others, but do you teach yourself? Are, are you such a teacher that you don't have a humble spirit about you? What is that? You think, you think that's what God's after? You think God's impressed by you not being humble and being willing to learn? He's not impressed by you in that. That's not impressive. You, while you preach against not stealing, do you steal? So you're the guy who's over here saying, look at that thief. Man, if he, should, he should just be like me. How dare he ruin our good society doing that? You don't realize that you're a thief as well. See, that's, that's the core. You and that guy down the street, you got a whole lot in common. Maybe different stories. The same problem that plagues his heart plagues your heart too. You're not immune from it. Maybe you didn't go stealing anything from a store this week, but did you steal looks at someone else's husband or wife? Did you steal the dignity of somebody by lusting over them and turning them into an object? Did you steal someone's, someone's dignity by, by gossiping about them behind their back? See, it's the same stuff. It just comes out in different ways and different people who have different stories. How dare we start to look out over other people? He goes through, he talks about being greedy and, and robbing temples. That could mean a whole lot of different things. One of the things it could mean is just they're not giving faithfully. They hoard their wealth thinking that they're somehow special and earned it because of some magical thing that they've been able to do in life rather than giving it away, right? The Christian recognizes we didn't earn anything. God stewarded everything to us. And if anyone has any more than anybody else, it's only because of God's providence. That's it. We're all utterly bankrupt. Back in 1922, you guys have seen this story. King Tut was a famous Egyptian pharaoh. His uh, cave was discovered. His burial place was discovered. They've been looking for his burial place for many years in the Valley of the Kings. He was like the one pharaoh they hadn't found. And then one day an archaeologist stumbled over a big rock that ended up being the entranceway to this cave. They opened it up and what they found was this huge room. Huge room filled with gold, just sparkling treasure beyond treasure, just dazzling gold. It took them months and months to sort through all the treasures that were in this room. Then they opened the back door and they got into the back room, the inner room, and there was more gold and more treasure. And in the middle of it was a coffin, a sarcophagus, blaring gold. In fact, it was three coffins. It was a coffin within a coffin within a coffin. All of them gold. All of them dazzling. And they opened the first one, more gold. They opened the second one, more gold. They opened the third one. And there's this body. And on top of the body, they had put beautiful Egyptian art. It was a gold face mask. And today, that's put in a museum today because it literally is considered some of the most beautiful artistry of that time period that we know of. Beautiful gold mask. And they peeled off that mask. And you know what was underneath? A dead body that had been rotting for a thousand years. Some of us put an air on as if we got this thing going on to the world and we figured Christianity out. We've got gold all around us. We go through all the motions of religion. And inside, when you really ask the question, is there any faith in there? Cut through the Christian music, cut through all this stuff that we do that sounds all Christian-y. Do you know Jesus? Right? 
That, that question should haunt us a little bit. Because I'll tell you what, I want to know him. Not just to get into heaven. He's good. I want to know the guy. I want to hear his voice. I want to be one of his sheep. I want to be counted as one of the elect. I want to know Jesus. And I don't want to settle for Christian stuff that blinds us. We trick ourselves. I'll tell you what, impressing people, trying to impress people is exhausting. And I find myself in it all the time. I'm preaching to myself this one, guys. I want you to know that. It's so exhausting trying to be the guy with the answers on everything. Right? It's so tiring. And, and here's the thing. God hasn't called you to an exhausted life trying to impress him or anybody else. He hasn't. I've got three little girls. I love my daughters as much as a man can love his daughters. I love them. And one of my daughters, little Mira, she... She's an impressive little feisty girl. That kid is an athlete. I'm just telling you, I know some of you guys have kids that are athletes. Mira, that girl's a born athlete. At two years old, she's sprinting across a soccer ball, dribbling, sprinting across the soccer field, dribbling a soccer ball. At two, I got it on video. It's impressive. You know when she's doing that, and I'm a soccer player, so that spoke my love language, right? Here's the thing. I didn't love her any more or less when she's dribbling across a soccer field with a soccer ball intact at her feet, turning around corners, than when she's cuddled on my lap. No more, no less. I love my daughter. You know why? She's my daughter. She's not earning merit points with dad. You know when I, I don't love her more in these moments, but you know some of my very favorite moments with Mira? She's so strong and independent. She, she's just like, I can't wait to see what she does with her life. She's incredible. I love, she's got this little funny thing she does. I don't know what it is, where it came from, but when she is walking on the street and she comes to either like a grate in the sidewalk, you know those kind of like things where they put a grate down and you can see deep down in there, or if she's at a playground thing where there's like a little bit of space between where she's supposed to walk, all the other kids can do it easy. And Mira, being pure athlete, you'd think she can do this just fine. She's terrified of it. She she goes up and she'll spend a good minute thinking about it, just like this. Like, uh, and it's only about that deep. It's not a big thing. Sometimes it can be a curb on a street, just a big enough curb. She'll actually get down on her knees and go over the curb sitting down like that. It's funny. But you know what I love? I love when she's here like this, thinking about it, doesn't know what to do, and all the other kids are just bounding by her. And then she looks back at me and puts her hand up and goes, yeah. I'm going to need you on this one, Dad. I know everyone else looks like they can do it on their own, but I need you. See, your father loves that about you. When you look to him and you say, I, it seems like everyone does this just fine, but I'm desperate for you to walk me through this. I need you. I'm not going about it without you. See, that's what your father wants. He's not impressed with you bounding forward like everybody else. You're not earning points with God. And, and, and if you think that's what Christianity is, about how Christian can I be, 
about how Jesus-y and how much Christian culture can I load in my life and how loud can I play my worship. If, if you think that's what it is and you bought into this Christian lie that it's about how much gold you put around yourself rather than clinging for dear life to the Father's hand who loves you not because of what you do but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf and he looks at you as a son fully loved no matter what you do, if you lose sight of that identity and you start trying to impress God, you are in a dangerous place. Here's why it's dangerous. You will fail at some point. And when you fail, if you built an identity on thinking that you're impressive, you will fall further than you've ever fallen when you fail. You will have no idea what's going on in life because you forgot to hold the Father's hand. He wants you to cling to Him. That's what this is about. Stop putting on airs, stop with the gold, stop with everything else. Just cling to the Father. He's good. He wants to lead you. Paul, he lays out an uppercut in these next few verses. I mean, what he does next is he just tries to cripple us with this idea. Let me read this to us and explain it. He says, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now this is a bit of a tongue twister. I'm going to explain it. Try to bear with me here. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from God, not from man. Now, what's the deal with circumcision? Why is that important here? This is very important. Keep in mind, he's speaking to Jews. The mark of circumcision to a Jewish person was perhaps above everything else that they would have valued showing how religious they were. That was the top one. So he's going right for the gold star, right? Go right to the very top. What is it that you most identify with? Well, it was the mark of circumcision. To a Jewish person, that mark was given by God to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Way back when God gave the law to Abraham, when he gave the command to Abraham that he was going to make a nation out of him, he then gave Abraham and his family and all of his descendants, that's the Jewish people, the mark of circumcision. Now what had happened was, that they were just banking on the fact that they had gone through this outward ceremony of circumcision to make it seem like they were good with God. I went through, this, I went through that when I was a baby, so whatever I do, it's my fail-safe. If I screw, no matter how much I screw up, no matter how much I walk away, at least I was circumcised. Paul says, you think that's, how, you think that's what God's after? A life of no faith, but you're just banking on a, a surgery you had? He goes, hypothetical situation. This is what he says. Hypothetical situation. You got a guy over here, born into a Jewish family and circumcised, who doesn't keep the law at all. He's got no faith. Then you got a guy over here who's not circumcised. He's a Gentile. Hypothetically, this person doesn't exist, but hypothetically, he keeps all of God's laws. Hypothetical guy. God's looking down on the two people. Which one's he pleased with? The guy who keeps the law. The guy who's following the Father's commands and is exhibiting faith. See, the outward ceremony of circumcision isn't what saved you. They, they, that was just a pointer towards the true circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the flesh that stood between you and the Father. 
God wants to actually change you. Matthew In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says these words that are very relevant at this point. I only preach on the, these verses a, a couple times because they're pretty tough. But this is the sermon where it's really important to hear it. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's he saying? Jesus is saying, look, every one of us is going to die and stand before the judgment seat of God. That's going to happen. It could happen today. It could happen to me today. It could happen at some point in the future. Every one of us is going to stand before God. And here's what God's not going to do on that day. This is, this is not what's going to happen. Right? You're not going to stand before the council and God's going to go, now, how much of Calvin's Institutes did you read? Yeah, did, did you really understand it? Did you parse it right? Did you get your theology intact? Let me see. Oh, you only read 10% of Calvin? Hmm. What do you think, guys? Should we let him in? That's not what God's going to do. He's also not going to do this. How many people did you win to faith in Jesus? Hmm. 17. Billy Graham's like 17,000. It's not that impressive. You didn't win any? Oh. Guys, what do you think? Should we let him in? See, that's not going to happen. See, the day we stand on our judgment seat, there's only one thing that matters. There's one thing. It's not what you've accomplished. It's not what you've done. It's, it's not all the things you tried to do to impress anybody else or to impress God. All of that are good things. They could be wonderful good things, but they become bad things when you make them the best thing. You hear that? When you take a good thing like the Bible and you begin to boast in it as if your knowledge of the Bible is your identity and the best thing, then the Bible in your life has become a bad thing right? Because the best thing is Jesus. And the good thing of the Bible is only good so long as it points you towards Jesus and puts you in a place where you recognize the vast separation that exists between you as a sinner and a holy God. And when God looks at you on your judgment day, which is coming, the only question he will have is, are you going to pay the debt for your sin or is Jesus going to pay the debt for your sin? That's it. One of two options. You get a choice. Which one are you going to have? You want to pay it in hell? Or are you going to take Jesus' gift of paying it on your behalf? It's up to you. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm impressed with you fully the moment you accepted me because I'm impressed with Jesus. And when I look at you, here's what I see. I see the blood of Jesus covering all your weakness. You know that's what the Father thinks of you? When you put your faith in Christ... He looks down on you and he sees a beloved son and daughter. You don't have to, imp imagine if Mira thought, my little daughter, thought she had to try to impress me with all the work she did. Then every time she loses a tournament as she gets older, the first thing she's going to be doing is looking back saying, what's dad thinking? But if she knows she's loved, whether she wins or loses, has a good day, bad day, whether she sins or doesn't sin, or falls way off the cart, if she knows she's loved, now you got foundation. That's the Father's love for you. You come in here with a bad week, you come in here with sin, guess what? If you've trusted in Christ and there's a flicker of a flame of faith inside of you, God's looking at you not saying, man, messed up again. He's looking at you going, I love you. 
I love you. I sent my son to die on the cross for you. I love you no less today than before that bad week you just had. Isn't that good news? Now here's what we do with that. We take that and then we, it's like we throw it out the window, church. I'm telling you, I'm in these conversations all the time with us. It's like we throw it out the window and we do the same things that Paul is writing against in Romans chapter 2. We start clinging to outward, outward stuff. How do we do that? You know what for some of you is, number one? It's your baptism. This is, this is real. Sometimes I ask you, tell me about your faith. And you know where you go, the first thing you do? You go back many years ago to when you were baptized. As if that's the defining thing for you. Doesn't matter what you do with your life, how you live your life. For you, you're baptized, so you're good. Come in a room like this, kind of going through the motions of religion. Is there real faith taking place? Do you know the Lord? Do you know his voice? Because if you're a sheep, the sheep know the shepherd's voice, right? And if all you did on your baptism was an outward ceremony, like he was talking about circumcision, there was no real transformation of the heart, I got news for you. All you did was you got wet. <laughs> That's it. And really, you need to be baptized for the first time after placing your faith in Jesus today, right? Don't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's not for certain. Baptism doesn't save you. Some of you have convinced yourself that you're good with God because you're here. You came to church, rolled out of bed, put some clothes on, got here on a Sunday morning, and you go through the motions of religion well. You sit through sermons. Thank you for being here and listening to my voice. You even go to small groups, right? You participate in all the stuff your church says you're supposed to do. You give financially to the church. Certainly God's got to be impressed. At least you've done enough stuff to do the Christian thing, right? You can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool God. Some of us have convinced ourselves that we're good with God because we're good, upright, hear it, Americans, right? We're good. We're American. We got that good old-fashioned American social moral etiquette. We're better than everybody else. That's what it means to be American, isn't it? Right? And so as long as you live in this country, as long as you try to be a good, upstanding citizen, God's got to be impressed with you. Vote a certain way, right? What's interesting is I got a brother-in-law who's a pastor in the South, and that, that language that I just said, vote a certain way, means two different things to our two different churches. <laughs> right? One votes one way, one votes another, but we say, hey... That's what it means to be a Christian. I uh, dress a certain way. I listen to a certain thing. You know what's really tricky with this one? Modern Christian culture has become so fun that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that just because we like Christian stuff that we're Christians. Oh, uh-oh. So just because we bring in all the music and we listen to Lauren Daigle on repeat doesn't mean you're a Christian, right? You can surround yourselves with Jesus bobblehead dolls and have a really fun time at church. And here's the tricky thing about a lot of church services is that they do a really good job. I try to make this a compelling service for you. I try to do a good job. I don't try to put on a show. It's not theater. I'm not doing that. I don't play that game. Some churches do that. I'm not out for doing that. But you know what? Sometimes... You can come be a part of the emotional experience over and over again and get a really good show. Be around Christian stuff and Christian language, and there's no actual faith. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. 
Step one is recognizing you can't do anything and you are in desperate need to hold on to the Father's hand because as you go on your own, you're on a one-way track to hell and that it's a terrible destination. I need God in my life to speak to me and you need God in your life to speak to you. If you don't know Jesus' voice, it doesn't mean you don't have any faith. You might have a flicker in there. But I want to call you up. We've got the Holy Spirit, church. You know what that means? It means that you're able to hear the words of the Lord when you go in your prayer closet and listen. You can discern. It's not just hearing voices in your head. You learn how the Father speaks to you. And we need to grow into maturity. I was talking to my brother-in-law this last week. He, he brought me to Revelation 3. Such a critical little place here. Revelation chapter 3. We use this as an evangelistic verse all the time. Revelation 3 verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and offer, opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and dine with him. Now all the time we use that as evangelistic, thinking we're speaking to non-believers. But that's in Revelation 3. See, Revelation 3 is written to churches. It's written to Christians. So here's, here's the idea. You're a follower of Christ. You got faith. That's great. If there's a flicker in there, I love that. And can I just tell you, church, I see the flicker. I know that there's faith in this room. I see it. I see these stories. I see what God's doing. I see the way you cling to God in the midst of struggles and brokenness and sickness and, and hard stuff. I see it. But here's what this is saying in Revelation 3. Jesus is pounding on the door of your life. He's just pounding. He's saying, you got me? You've got faith? Good. Now let me in. Let me in. I'm pounding at the door, Christian. I want more than to just be the guy that saved you back then. I want to dine with you. The language is of a feast. He wants you to enjoy the feast of Christianity. That which you were made for, to sit in the arms of the Savior and know you're fully loved despite all your sin and to have a day-in, day-out abiding relationship with the Lord. He's banging on the door. Will you let him in? Or are you going to come to church every week and not open the door to let him walk out there with you when you leave this room? Whatever you have going on in life right now, whatever burden you have, Whatever worries you carry, whatever fears cripple you, if you put your faith in Jesus, hear this, he sees you as a beloved son and daughter, despite your inadequacies. That ought to bring you to a place of worship regularly in your life. Not just when we do the collective thing and we sing. That reality, as a genuine follower of Christ, ought to stir something in you, where from time to time you have to just stop Turn on some worship music and say, whoa, it's good. You've got nothing to prove to God. So you can stop trying so hard. You can sit in your belovedness. True Christianity is relishing in the reality of receiving grace. And he'll be enough for you. Church, you can fool a whole lot of people. You can fool me. But you can't fool God. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. God, we want that. We want that so bad. I want more of that in my life. I want that to be experienced in this room. And I pray in this room that what's happening right now is that your convicting spirit is bringing about renewal in people's lives. I pray for fresh faith today.
I pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit that today we're letting you in. We're opening the door of our heart right now that in our seats we're saying, come on in, God. Whatever you got for me today, I'm in. I'm walking with you. Jesus, do that work in us right now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.